It's something I meant to mention, just um, a very innocuous announcement. There was a packet of uh, tablets found in church uh, last Sunday morning. So if you've, you're missing a packet of eight tablets, uh, please come and speak to me at the ends. Uh, Revelation chapter 2. We'll be reading from verses 1 to 7. Chapters 2 to 3, of course, are the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. They're also letters to the church in every age. So these are words to us. And as we consider the challenges and problems facing each church, may God's word search our souls too. uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and find them to be false I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us through it, that you transform us through it. And we recognize that sometimes that means we need to hear hard words. But help us to see that even your hard words are gracious words. We pray that ultimately they would be healing words. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter is a rock-solid believer. He truly believes that the Bible is his final authority for all matters of faith and life. And if you were to look at the dog ears and the cracked cover, you would see that Peter really does love and use his Bible. If you visited his house, you'd see that his bookshelves look like overflow storage for the evangelical bookshop. He gets fired up reading and talking about salvation by grace alone, uh, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Annie is a gifted apologist, and there's no big issue that frightens her. The problem of suffering, critical race theory, abortion. Whenever these hot topics come up in conversation, She doesn't sweat. She graciously but courageously shows her colleagues how God's wisdom makes more sense than the wisdom of the world. Margaret is a faithful Christian wife. 
And Mother Jim has quietly and faithfully served for decades as a deacon. Sharon hosts the home groups. Stanley, every week, donates huge chunks of his earnings to church and missions. Who are these people? They're the kinds of people a healthy church is made of and that every pastor is thankful for. They're Bible-believing, truth-defending, faithfully-plotting Christians. And these people are present in the church today, in this church. (laughs) And they were present in the first-century church of Ephesus as well. The letters to the seven churches are letters to the church in every age. And in these letters, Jesus reveals, as it were, the results of his spiritual health check on the church. His words to Ephesus, as we've just read, reveal an impressive record of spiritual health. Despite living in a sea of lies, false teaching, eye-watering immorality, the Ephesians knew the truth and they loved the truth. And they lived their lives according to the truth, no doubt at great cost. But they didn't have a clean bill of health. There was an unseen cancer that needed to be dealt with quickly. There was spiritual health, but there was also spiritual decay. You see, the the church that, that loves the truth is prone to believe And practice the truth without love. As Jesus writes to each of these churches, he's speaking as their spiritual surgeon, we could say. And in each case, he introduces himself as the one who is qualified to treat them. He then goes on to give a diagnosis of the condition of each church. And then he spells out the consequences of Taking his prescription or not taking his prescription. We might imagine these seven churches as patients sitting in a ward as the chief surgeon does his rounds. But we mustn't think that we are like some sort of junior doctors following along and observing what Jesus is doing. No, we are patients in the ward too. And so... As we hear these words in the the words of verse 7, let's be ready to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is what he has to say to us. Before we hear Christ's diagnosis of our spiritual health, we need to grasp that this is an urgent message. It's an urgent message. As I've said to each of the churches, Jesus starts by introducing himself and he refers back to that glorious vision of the Son of Man in chapter one, which Richard has already preached on. And and he uses the language of that vision and introduces an aspect of that vision of who he is to each church. And he does that to prepare his hearers of who is speaking and that this is an urgent message. Look at verse 1. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And this reminds the Ephesians, first of all, of the authority of the one 
speaking. The stars, according to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20, are the angels of the seven churches. I counted this morning, and we we actually had seven stars along the platform this morning. But these stars refer to the angels, the heavenly representatives of each church. And, And they reminded each church that their residence was actually in heaven, that they existed in the spiritual realm, even more so than existing in this world. But the main point is this. That Jesus holds the churches in his right hands. He rules the churches through his word. He rules the church today through his word. And so we need to listen because the one speaking has authority. But there's comfort in this. You know, that shouldn't sound like a threat. The vision of Jesus in chapter 1 is awe-inspiring, and rightly, the Apostle John trembles when he sees it. But Jesus tells him, fear not. Because if the King of Kings is your King, and he's in your midst, then actually you've got nothing else to fear. And likewise, Jesus says to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 1, the words of him who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And this points us secondly to the presence of the one speaking. Our risen Lord ascended into heaven to rule at the Father's right side after his resurrection, but he is still present with us by his Spirit. Look at verse 7 again, which I've referred to. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I thought Jesus was speaking here. But the point is that Jesus speaks through his Spirit today. And so church, God is with us. He's with us. Are you aware of that? Christ rules the church of God in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. He walks among the lampstands this evening. He rules this church and is with this church. And he has an urgent message to deliver. And yes, he has an urgent message to deliver as we consider this passage tonight, but also every time his word is opened and preached. We should think this way, that he is speaking to us. Often, like a surgeon's knife, his words cut, but they cut to heal. To each of the seven churches, Jesus begins with the same two words. You can see them in verse two in this case. I know, I know. He knows your situation, your trials and your temptations, your successes and your failures. And he walks alongside you. He is with us, even and perhaps especially in the hardest of his words. He's with us to restore us and to heal us. And so we brace ourselves to hear his deadly diagnosis. His deadly diagnosis. As I've mentioned, there were many reasons why the church 
in Ephesus looked like a healthy church. And before giving them his criticism, Jesus gives them his commendation. There is spiritual health here. They were working hard to uphold the truth of the gospel. And you see, this church was a very well-taught church. They had a, a long list of famous teachers uh, who helped found the church, Aquila and Priscilla, uh, Apollos, who they mentored, and then Paul, who taught there for two years and wrote a letter to them, which we read from earlier. Now, false teaching did crop up in this church because Paul then had to send Timothy along uh, to put elders in place and to remain there, he commanded, until the false teaching had been dealt with. But from this passage, it's clear to see that that false teaching problem had been overcome because this church is now well known for their commitment to the truth. In verses two and three, Jesus commends them for their discernment. They have, if you read with me, they have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and find them to be false. When we hear the word apostles, we often think of the 12 apostles. But this is small a apostles. It just means sent once, uh, missionaries, evangelists, people who are sent out with a message. And there were plenty of traveling charlatan apostles in the days of the church of Ephesus. You can maybe imagine being a member of that church and walking to work and seeing posters pasted to the wall. Apostle Demetrius brings a word from God for one night only. Come to the city forum and be blessed as he opens up the mysteries of Scripture. Come prepared to hear and don't forget your wallets. But these teachers were false teachers. They were possibly the Nicolaitans, which are mentioned in verse 6, and who will pop up again in one of the other churches. But the Ephesians are not fleeced. They are working hard, verse 2, with toil and with patient endurance, verse 3, for my name's sake. It's hard work to defend the truth as a church. We need to work hard to study it and to obey it, to apply it to our behavior and to swim against the tide of the culture around us. But that's what the Ephesians were doing. And Jesus knew all about it. And so before we, we jump on to the criticism that Jesus gives, let's take this away. Doctrine matters. Biblical truth is essential to the health of individual Christians and individual churches. And the New Testament always connects what we believe to how we behave. If you don't work hard to conform yourself to biblical truth, the beliefs and behaviors of the world around us, well, that's the mold that we will be squeezed into. The church at Ephesus was certainly surrounded by immorality, brothels on busy street corners. 
temple prostitution, drinking parties. This was normal life for an Ephesian citizen. It was a city that was steeped in emperor worship and idol worship, the dark arts even. This was sin city. And yet the Ephesians were enduring this hostile environment because they knew the truth and because they built their lives upon that truth. Our situation is not so different, really. The same sins dressed up differently, the same heresies that come round year after year. And so doctrine matters. Professor of church history, Carl Truman, says this, every age has had its darkness and its dangers. The task of the Christian is not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and to respond appropriately to them. Jesus walks among us and he speaks to us through his word today, a word that gives us all we need to respond to the vexing issues of 21st century Northern Ireland. But are you listening to it? Because it's only in it that you will find the grace and the wisdom to patiently endure in a dark world. Well, after hearing Jesus' commendation of what is spiritually healthy, it's hard to imagine that there could be anything seriously wrong with this church. And yet, Jesus' diagnosis, on the whole, is a deadly diagnosis. According to Christ, believing the truth and even living by biblical truth is worthless. Worthless. Without the supreme virtue of Christian love. And so we want to consider Christ's criticism, which is spiritual decay. There's been decay here. Let's read verse four again. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Christ's criticism is this. The church at Ephesus had actually become so blinkered by their zeal for the truth, for doctrinal purity, that they had actually departed from their initial love for Christ and for other people. People in the church, people outside of the church. Biblical truth is meant to make us treasure Jesus. And then as an overflow of that, to treasure each other. John writes in one of his letters, and you know it well, we love because he first loved us. And the Bible is the greatest love story that's ever been written. It shows us God's love for us planned in eternity past. God's love for us as he sent his son in history. God's love for us in his promise to restore this broken world and to invite us to dwell with him forever. And when you grasp that for the first time, and when you grasp aspects of that along your Christian walk, you were bowled over, were you not? You were moved. And that stoked a love for others too, those 
who you call brothers and sisters in Christ. And then for the lost and needy world around you that desperately needs to hear that gospel. To know and experience the love of God. And this is how it ought to be. But one of two things inevitably happens. The first we might call cruise control. You know enough to be saved. You know enough truth to affirm the church's statement of faith. You know what's acceptable and what's not acceptable Christian behavior. And then you cruise along at that level. And your love inevitably becomes cold. Now that's not what happened to the church in Ephesus it seems. But there is another thing that could happen to cause this coldness. And that is that you find your appetite for truth growing and growing. And you're reading God's word more and more. And you're reading good Christian books. And you're serving in church ministries. You're one of the folks I mentioned in the introduction to this sermon. And that's all well and good. Christ commends that. But then you become frustrated uh, that other people in the church don't see what they're missing and they don't seem to want to commit. You become frustrated and even angry and bitter at cruise control Christians. And then you know the details of the latest debate in the evangelical world, but you don't know the struggles of the brother who's sitting in front of you. You, you're well read on current politics, but you don't know your lost neighbor. And you don't maybe care about them that much anymore. You've got your doctrine nailed down, but your affections for the God of your doctrine is ebbing low. Of course, we don't know the details of exactly what caused this loss of love in Ephesus. But the point is this. Biblical truth without biblical love is worthless in Christ's eyes. It's a clanging symbol, to use Paul's metaphor. God sent his son in love. And Christ lovingly gave himself for undeserving sinners like me and like you. And so the lives that we live and the truth we proclaim must be given in love for people and out of love for God. Now what one of us can say that we haven't failed in this area? Have we, with God's help of course, strive to obey the greatest Commandment, love for God and love for people. Well, the deadly diagnosis is this. We haven't. We haven't. But Jesus doesn't leave his church under condemnation. He gives the deadly diagnosis to drive us to him. And then thirdly, we have the vital cure. In verse 5, Notice that Jesus gives two commands. Remember, first of all, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And then secondly, repent and do the works 
you did it first. And then he gives a conditional warning. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So let's consider those three together. First of all, remember where you fell from. Sometimes loving relationships go stale. Imagine a husband who spends more and more time at work or the wife who is always dealing with the kids and that becomes her sole focus. And before you know it, the couple realize that they're more like roommates than lovers. But then they come to their senses. They happen upon the place where they first dated or they dig out an old photo and they remember and they see how far they've fallen. Memory is a powerful tool in the hands of our spiritual surgeon. He commands us, remember how far you've fallen. Look back to those times in your Christian walk when your love for the Lord was great. Perhaps you knew less, but your love was greater. It shouldn't be that way. The more you know, the more your love should grow. So the call to remember is a call to realize and even to weep, to mourn, to confess your lovelessness. Not to hide behind your sound theology or your good deeds. No, draw close to God and he will draw close to you, says James. Remember from where you have fallen. Be honest about your lovelessness with your God. And then secondly, repent and return to deeds of truth and love. The command to repent is given to five of the seven churches, as we'll see. And it involves action. A return to doing the works you did before, Jesus said. Deeds of truth and love. And notice here that Jesus is not commanding the Ephesians to whip up feelings of love. You can't do that. Well, maybe you can, but it won't last. No, he tells them to do the works that they did at first. Don't don't think like the world. Feelings first and then action. No, if your love for God has waned, then start small and do works that will stoke your love for him. Maybe just a few verses at a time in your devotions and, and reflect on them carefully rather than trawling your way through your reading plan just to tick it off. If it's your love for your fellow Christians that has fallen on hard times, well, participate in member care and member prayer. Just talk to someone that perhaps you don't know or you haven't spoken to in a while and then commit to praying intelligently for them and you'll grow to love them. As for growing our love for non-Christians, well, we've thought about that plenty in our life groups and the same advice stands. Find an unbeliever. You probably already know one and get to know them and then pray for them. And you'll grow to love them. Remember and repent. 
The third part of Christ's cure is to heed the warning or to lose your witness. If we don't remember and repent, Jesus says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. The churches were called lampstands because they were shining lights of witness in a dark place. Witness to Christ and his gospel. But the thing is that the truth without love is not a beautiful witness. It's an ugly spectacle. And the Christian and the church that lives a life of bold defense for the truth, but without love, is not being a faithful witness to the God of love. They're potentially the opposite, a hindrance rather than a help. So please examine your heart and your activity tonight. Examine your, your reasons for reading all those Christian books. Examine your online approach. Examine your evangelism tactics. Evan, uh, examine your relationships with other people and with your gods. Because if we don't, this church, which is absolutely committed undoubtedly to biblical truth and raising up biblical Christians and preaching in a biblical way, all that toil could be wasted if this church becomes a loveless church. The lampstand could be removed by the Lord of the church. Churches are made up of individuals. And so each individual has his or her part to play in making this a truth-loving church. Good doctors warn patients of the consequences of not taking the prescription that he gives. But a good doctor also paints a picture of the health that can be enjoyed if the prescription is taken. And so if we don't repent of our lovelessness, our church will die. But if we remember and repent, there is the promise of life. The promise of life in closing. Let's read the last part of verse seven together. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus makes a promise to the one who conquers in each of his seven letters. And so we need to ask two questions as we close. First of all, what does he promise in this case? And secondly, what does it mean to conquer? First, Jesus promises the right to eat from the tree of life. And in the Old Temple, in the Old Testament, sorry, temple system, the lampstand that was to be made for that temple was designed to look like a tree with branches and and uh, floral elements engraved into it. And the reason for this is that it pointed back, back to the tree of life, which is mentioned in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden. And incidentally, that word translated paradise, paradise of God in your Bibles, is a word that really just means garden, the garden of God. And so the lampstand pointed back 
to the promise of life, life which would have been offered to Adam had he done what he was asked to do, but he disobeyed God's commands, life forfeited. But now we see with our whole Bibles complete that the lampstand also pointed forward to the tree of life in the end time paradise of God. You might want to flick forward to Revelation 22 verses 1 to 3. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. What a wonderful picture of what is to come. Life gains. The churches are represented by lampstands in Revelation. But they're not only symbols of light, the light of witness, his shining witness in the world. They also point to the life of Christ. The tree of life is nothing less than the life-giving presence of God. That life-giving presence was forfeited and lost by Adam and all of us sinners in Adam. But it was won for us again by our conqueror, the conqueror, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus who hung on a tree of death so that we could taste from the tree of life. And the amazing thing is, that that eternal life is already experienced now by anyone who puts their faith in Christ. Which moves us on then to that second question. Who is the one who conquers? Because it's to the one who conquers that the tree of life is given. The, The full expression of that eternal life which is tasted by believers now. Well, verse 7 says, the one who conquers is the one who has ears to hear what the Spirit says now in this life. Having ears to hear is one of Jesus' favorite expressions in the Gospels for having faith, for believing in his words. And so if you hear God's word and you respond in faith, then you will continue to be strengthened by his life-giving power throughout your life to endure. In the end, you will endure if your faith is in Christ. John, who received these visions and wrote them down, he knows all about this. He, he wrote in his first letter, 1 John 5, and he says this, everyone who has been born of God, born of God, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it who overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You see, when you place your faith in Christ, you become a new person. You're granted 
eternal life in that moment. You have the very presence of Christ by his spirit at work within you, the life-giving presence of God. And it's in that power and it's in that strength that you will endure to the end. Those who are born of God will overcome. So how can you be sure that you're born of God? Well, you respond to his words and tonight you repent and you remember. The doctor has given his diagnosis and he has prescribed his cure. If you belong in his church, which is his hospital, we might say, then you have everything you need to take seriously, to pay heed to the diagnosis and to take the cure, to remember and to repent. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. We're going to close by singing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.